0: Hi, this is Mike Oren, Head of Design Research at Clavio, and you're listening to Experiencing
1: Data with Brian T. O'Neill. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill.
2: Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Today, I've got Mike Oren on the line here. Mike's uh, head of design research at Klaviyo. And so part of the reason I'm, I have Mike on the show here, he doesn't know this, is that I was talking to one of the past guests of the show and, and one of my seminar participants on the data science side of the house, and they were interested in hearing more from Uh, user experience professionals and design professionals about their perspectives about working with data products and all of this. And so Mike and I had just met in Lou Rosenfeld's Quant versus Qual group, and so we just got to be talking, and I thought it would be interesting to kind of talk about what does a whole research team do, let alone one person at a software company, particularly in the UX space. How does that translate to data products and get your perspective? So welcome to the show.
0: Glad to be here. Thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah. First question I wanted to talk about, and I had a seminar student bring this up one time, which was like this fear that, you know, I'm a big fan of pushing for primarily qualitative research. Like, let's get that going before we worry about doing quantitative stuff, especially if you're building for some of this audience that primarily builds tools for internal stakeholders. You don't have thousands or millions of people such that you necessarily need large amounts of information and quantitative information to make good decisions. Can you talk to me about how you frame when do we need to worry about having lots of data and, and how do you get someone over the hoop of feeling comfortable with small data, with qualitative information about helping us to improve the usability and the utility of data products? How do you sell someone that I don't need to, to run a survey? We don't need to ask a thousand people to to know that this is a direction to go in.
0: Yeah, I I will say On the positive side, I don't have to deal with that question quite as much as I did in kind of the early days Uh where a lot of teams were more engineering driven now, more kind of product teams are out there. Right. And then there's more kind of education about kind of design thinking within business schools. But the biggest one is really trying to help them understand kind of when qualitative data is going to be better. So a lot of times it's anything where you're trying to understand the why. Quant data doesn't typically give you the why it tells you the what, the how much, but the why is definitely lacking. The other thing is within the qualitative data that my team primarily does where we're looking at behaviors. I actually tell my team never to do any qualitative research around preferences, even though I know that's still done by some teams. Preferences are usually something that you're not going to get a reliable enough samples from if you're just getting it qualitatively, just because preferences do tend to vary a lot from individual to individual. There's lots of other factors. We might be able to help people understand like why people are preferring one version over the other, but in terms of saying people prefer this option, we'd get biased data if we made the decision through qualitative research. Um, so, I mean, part of it in terms of selling qualitative data is Really acknowledging the limitations of qualitative data, in addition to talking about what it does do really well, which is give us that really deep understanding of who our customers are, what are their motivations, what are their behaviors.
2: Got it. Can you give me a hard example of? And I've seen this too before. It's it's really hard to say. Well, we're going to roll with option one when we just got all this nice verbal feedback about option two, and, and that's what they asked for, and that's what they said they liked, and Mike saying that we're not supposed to do this, but like these people loved it when we showed them that and they said they love
0: it. Argue that
2: back to me, the other side of that.
0: Yeah, I actually have a, a pretty recent example of this. We're uh-huh. actually tied to data products too. Uh, we're in the process of updating our... A-B testing back end for a portion of the experience. And as part of that, we want to message to our customers what options they have in terms of whether it's restarting their tests or ending the ones that are statistically significant or just choosing a winner, whether it's statistically significant or not.
2: I'm gonna pause you, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. Quick, give us uh, 30 seconds about what ClayView does just to give people the context and then jump back in.
0: Not a problem. Uh, so ClayView is a platform that helps customers our customers communicate better with their customers. A lot of it's email and SMS communication. And so we allow our customers to do personalization of their messages as well as A-B test and track the data so that way they know how well their communications are actually performing. Got it.
2: Okay, so we're talking about a tool to send email, multiple versions were designed up, you're getting feedback from these users on which ones they quote like, and, and that's where we're coming back to, is that right? Exactly. Okay, so please continue.
0: Yeah. Originally, this was uh, something that the, the product manager drew the, in that space and the designer were going and they were talking to customers and having internal conversations, but they kept hearing conflicting opinions. And that, so this was something where we, we could have potentially rolled out a survey, but that survey would have told us that people want more options, <laughs> which was one of the questions, do people want two options or three options? Everybody's going to say they want more options. But by instead going out and talking to people, showing them the different options, as well as showing them things in different ways. So we had one where it was without any of the experience design, just to kind of get what their base reaction is, or kind of gut, this is what I'm thinking. Another one where we showed them the design. Oftentimes when we design things, we try to nudge people into a decision that we think is going to be better for their business. So we put a little recommended label on it. People chose a different option than when they were just presented the options by themselves. Not super surprising. That's kind of where psychology comes into play. And then we gave them, at the end, we we showed them all the options together as well as kind of, do you want two options, three options, and had them talk through it. Again, not surprising. Most people chose three options, but because we had the information from those two previous questions and we had them verbally talking about why they were selecting those different options we were actually able to make the recommendation that while people feel like they want three options, it's because there were issues with each of the options that they were being selected. And three options, gave them a feeling of more control in terms of what actual options they wanted. Two options was really the most practical, but the thing was that we weren't really answering the main question that they had, which was what was going to happen with their data if they restarted. The test with a new algorithm that was being used. And so that also was something that we wouldn't have been able to identify if we we're only looking at the quantitative data, if we we're only surveying them, we had to get them to, to voice through their concerns about it.
2: Got it. So I know that the answer to this is not, never listen to anything that your stakeholders or customers want. We know that's not the answer. When should we pay attention to what people, what's coming out of the mouth? <laughs> Versus what they're doing. How, how do we? Is that just something that comes with experience, or are there rules of thumb that you can give about when we're in this context? I want you to focus on this because of this. And, and this is why we can't take that as the word of God or whatever.
0: Yeah. I mean, so some of it comes down to how have you phrased the question? If you're asking them if they want something and you're saying what that thing is that you want them to want, then they're naturally going to say, Yes, because it's social desirability bias. So being aware of some of those kind of cognitive biases Mm -hmm. is one of the key things. The other thing that will help is asking the same question in different ways. So that way you can begin to understand the different ways people are thinking about. So in, in that particular case, we actually presented the same question, but with different things being shown to them. So that way we could see what was the impact of basically the visual stimuli, whether it was just words within the, the survey question or the actual visual design of the interface or, again, kind of seeing all the options. And then from that, we were able to extract kind of what the actual truth is, basically do some triangulation, which sometimes you do the triangulation, mixing the quant and the qual in this case is mixing all the qual data together in order to figure out right. what's the real, real intent behind them. Got it, got it. So how would you teach, I
2: I don't know if you have, you know, for example, data scientists working on your team, or if you get them out into the field doing any type of ride-alongs or interviews or anything like that. If you're coming from kind of the data world, not from the user experience world, how do you get started with this? And the next question I know some people have is like, they're worried about doing it wrong. So how do you get started and what, what are maybe some of the things that we don't need to worry about getting wrong to get started and actually get some value out of this? Can Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, so at Clayview, actually, a decent number of data scientists do go out and talk to customers and we definitely mm-hmm. encourage that. We also run monthly uh, training sessions for them. The one that we just ran earlier this week was about best practices for interviewing. So... Couple high level ones for avoid leading questions, asking one question at a time, making sure that you're accepting intentional silence as well as you know, when you ask a question, uh, especially during a live interview, I mean sometimes we'll we'll do unmoderated qualitative research where we're not actually present to ask a follow-up question. But if, if you are there, make sure you're really listening to what the person is saying and following up based off of the the things that that participant found most interesting, that customer found most interesting. And not just focusing on what you want to hear or what you thought you wanted to learn about, because sometimes those rabbit holes, for lack of a better phrase, will actually lead you to a better solution than anything that you would have thought of before. Because we, we all kind of bring our own biases into conversations. We We have solutions in mind. If we're not Keeping an open mind when we go have these conversations with our customers, there's a high risk that we'll end up just doing research that's not, it gets us to a local maximum because, yeah, we, we get feedback to say this is validated. But we don't really understand what the problem was that people are having and how best to solve it because we're not really working on trying to understand them as a, a human being, for lack of a way to put it. Yeah I I'm 100% with you I was the way I see
2: this there, there's gold in them there tangents those tangents are good there's so much stuff there often I, sometimes it's just the tangent I think part part of the skill of a researcher is knowing how far am I going to let the the line out of the reel before I start dialing it back in because I'm balancing I've got 1 hour with this person it was really hard to get that time Do I keep letting them take line out or do I start reeling it back in? And I think that's something that comes with practice. But, you know, one of the things, you know, I talked to my participants in my seminar about with this is that, you know, part of the reason you do qualitative research is you're going in to learn about the things that you never went in to ask about because you didn't know they were important. So the script is really just a guideline. Just like right now, I have a script for my interview with Mike, but it's just really like if conversation pauses, or we kind of like finish up a topic, I might grab one off that, but I didn't plan to talk to you about best practices for your team about doing research. Great, let's dump into that. And so I'm, I'm deliberately going here with you because I didn't know to ask you about that. And I didn't know you were running training in house. So we're, we're kind of living that example right now. So you, you talked about bias questions, which I think bias is something our, our data people definitely understand. You're talking about silence. I, I assume you're talking about not jumping into the silence too quickly. Is that, is that what you're talking about?
0: Yeah. There's, there's a natural human tendency to fill any period of silence. I think it's up to three seconds. People start feeling very uncomfortable. So it's yeah. important to, after you ask a question, count in your head, usually about seven to eight seconds Add the Mississippi's whatever else you need to do. So it's not just a quick one through seven, but really give it time <laughs> and kind of let things sink in the other thing especially if you're really at the early stage of a project and you're not really just trying to see if a solution is working but you're really trying to understand what the problem is that you're trying to solve just ask them to tell you a story about a recent incident that's related to it because you get much richer descriptions from people if you ask them to tell you a story versus if you just ask them a straightforward question. I used this example yesterday, and I teach this well at grad class, so I used that with them because there's a tendency to jump straight to the solution space when sometimes you need to go into the problem space where you're trying to identify what it is that's really most important to people to then solve for that. Got it,
2: got it. Is there a specific like, example you can, you can give of that?
0: Yeah, so I mean, in the case of uh,
2: class yesterday, Sorry, what's the class and who are the students, just for
0: context? So I teach a class called Evidence-Based Design. Okay. And so it's a class at IET's Institute of Design. So they're all design master's students. Okay. And so two questions I asked is, the first one was I had them, well, I asked them about their experience using an app to order food. So that was less story-based and more focused on the technology. And there I got like really... Kind of the answers you'd expect, especially if you're working for a company like Grubhub, where you know they, they use Grubhub and like they talked about using the place that they normally ordered from and kind of the t- typical kind of feature sets that largely already exist. Versus uh, when I reframed the question to have her tell me a story about the last time she she dined out with or or dined with uh, someone else, it was actually uh, related to the t- same story because last time she ordered food or was also last time she dined with somebody in that case she went into a lot more detail in terms of why she ended up deciding to order food in terms of like it was been a long day she was really tired and then her boyfriend was the person she was dining with and he had different preferences so kind of that back and forth that happened between those two in order to decide what to eat and kind of what to order, which then opens up new opportunities for experiences within something like Grubhub, because Grubhub right now is really designed for a single user ordering food. But we know that from that story, you know, it's not just about her ordering food, it's really about, well, what time of day is it? Because if it's late in the day and she hasn't eaten yet, she's going to be more likely to go order food well, it's kind of creepy, we can technically get data from people's devices about like how long their screen has been on. We can tell like, hey, they're probably haven't eaten because they've been on their device. So now that's a good time to prompt them to go order something. We may have a sense that like, hey, this person, when they order, they also, they typically order food for more than one person. So maybe that's where we then recommend that other person open up Grubhub on their phone and they can actually co-order together. And then we don't have to do that back and forth together. You can streamline that process a little bit. And those are things that you, would, you wouldn't you would typically get just by asking questions about that specific experience, but really having the person tell a story and having that story take you where it leads.
2: Yeah. I'm a big fan of the same thing. A lot of the, you know, what I try to get people going with this, particularly in the analytics space, if you're supposed to be helping people make decisions, like if you're, especially, and this goes back to more the you know, our enterprise data teams that are helping internal stakeholder groups make decisions with data, there's a good chance they've made the decision in the past without the dashboard or the model or the thing that you're making. So it's like, well, how did you do it last week when you made this decision or last quarter and mm-hmm. and having them replay that scenario, whether it's using a competing tool or a homemade Excel spreadsheet or whatever, there can be a lot of gold in there to watch them walk through it and talk through that that process. It sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing as, as show me what you did, tell me a story about it. Yeah. You know, the recall thing can be really interesting.
0: Absolutely. It's another reason for trying to recruit people who have recently experienced it instead of just contacting anybody from your list.
2: You said what we were, I think when we first, Matt, i forget how the context came up and you said dashboards are a real pet peeve for me (laughs) what was that about
0: yeah uh, they are definitely a, a pet peeve of mine what happens too often is when people create dashboards they stick everything on there if a stakeholder within the organization asks for a piece of data that goes on the dashboard if one time a piece of information was needed with other pieces of information that are already on the dashboard, that now gets added to the dashboard. And so you end up with dashboards that just have all these different things on them and it you lose the signal to noise, right? You no longer have a clear line of, of signal. The other thing that tends to happen with the dashboard is people don't typically go and look at it. I worked at an organization in the past where they created these dashboards, set up a whole room to to monitor the dashboards, and then nobody ever went into the, that room. Unless, of course, something was was going wrong. But the dashboard wasn't being used to kind of alert them about when things were going wrong. It was just being set up because they felt like they, they had to have a dashboard. And if someone had it, and this is the other thing I've seen, too, you, you set up these dashboard rooms and you have people sitting in them, but because You'll have those different data anomalies, but you have all those things on the screen. Nobody's actually noticing when that anomaly occurs because it's just so many different things already going on. And so, instead of a dashboard, like, can't we make more intelligent systems that really show us what we need to know when we need to know it, instead of trying to tell us everything at once?
2: Sure. Yeah, you you made. This is true, particularly for more operational things when you're, you know, a system that's observing anything, a group of objects, uh, scenarios, things like this and watching the mon- monitoring is probably the right verb for that. But I agree with you. And, you know, part of the experience we need to talk about when we talk about experiencing data is that the experience can happen in more additional vehicles besides a dashboard, uh, a text message and email uh, notification, there's other ways to experience the effects of good intelligent data product work. And like you said, pushing the right information at the right time, instead of all the information all the time (laughs) or worse, like that was really interesting. Oh, it's gone. It's like, (laughs) wait. Did I need to know what that said, that red blip. (laughs) And there's no way to get back to it. It's like, well, is it still persisting? And was it a mistake? So I'm with you on the the same thing. I've seen the same thing where there's this comfort in having a large flat screen monitor up in the air that has some pie charts on it. And it makes us feel like we're aware of what's going on in the system. But if something were to go wrong, you probably wouldn't be typing on a keyboard down here, craning your neck, looking up at the sky on something where you can't read the text because it's... (laughs) you know 12 point font on a 30 inch monitor that's eight feet away from you it's a very impractical way to actually make any decisions with the information but you know they're there, there, there are, i'm not saying it's always a wrong thing but I, I think these are the kinds of things that when we separate the user experience out from the dashboard this is the kind of stuff that can happen we get so focused on the ui and the output and not about the experience of, well, what would you do if there was a crisis? Would you really be looking up in the air and everyone's going to look up at the air at this
0: low-density display that's 12 feet away, you know? Well, depending upon who's designed that dashboard too. Right. like so many of them, like data literacy in the U.S. is really low. It's like 7 to 11%, I think, at one point. So a lot of people don't actually have the right level of data literacy to know what the right way to visualize the data is, or kind of what are the right signals to even display given any particular instance of data. So what you end up is, sometimes you'll just get designers choosing what they feel looks the nicest on the screen. So you get like these really pretty dashboards, but then you have things that like at times, time series they do normally, thankfully, graph as a line, so that's good. But you'll sometimes get these donut charts that really don't make sense as donut charts. Like that's not, the most meaningful way to look at that data, to cut that data, and that's that's an issue.
1: Yeah,
2: so I've seen issues with this as well, where particularly people in visual design who have not had a lot of experience with user experience design, or even real interface design for data products, where you do start to see fads and visual trends around dashboards and data visualization. You know, oh, we heard pie charts were bad, so that's finally gotten out, so now we'll make them donut charts and make a bar chart, really hard to read, but it sure looks good when you show it to someone who's not actually going to use it, but it it makes us feel confident that our product is, is, is shiny. So, you know, this is an issue too, and there's a literacy problem on the designers piece as well. And that's something that I, I think needs to increase as well. But talk to me a little bit about the, the data literacy thing here. I see two sides of this. I think most of the work, ultimately, yes, literacy, even within a company, may need to come up but if we constantly take the position that well it's not my fault that they don't understand how to use it which i think is the default space that a lot of data teams are in which is that's a them problem which is I'm, if they don't understand statistics it's like sorry like you gotta that's not my problem onto the next thing where's the line there Do do you think it's design's job to to make that stuff to meet the user where they're at any comments just about kind of this data literacy thing, particularly inside the business and not so much the general public, but whose problem is it when we don't understand what the interface is telling us? Is, is that a design problem or a user problem?
0: <laughs> I think it's, I mean, there, it's an every yeah, yeah. everyone's problem, right? So depending upon what, what type of data we're talking about and like what that product is doing, if an organization is truly trying to make data-driven decisions, but then they haven't trained their leaders to understand the data in the right way, and then they're they're not actually making data-driven decisions, they're really making instinctual decisions, or they're pretending that they're using the data, because they'll look, say, like, oh, look, this thing <laughs> did this thing, uh, and then that will end up actually making them to use the data to make sometimes bad decisions because there wasn't enough data to really trust that it was the right decision to make at that time. That said, there's always going to be gaps in data. Like there's no such thing as a perfect answer. Like either you weren't able to capture the full context, which is where qualitative data can help kind of fill some of those contextual gaps in quantitative data. Or sometimes things happen and you just, missed a month of data, missed a week, hopefully not a whole, whole month, but like an hour of data, a week of data, things happen. So then it's, what I've seen happen sometimes is because of low data literacy and because of sometimes data purism within uh, data analyst teams, what you end up having is then data mistrust within the organization. So knowing that data is never going to be perfect some folks will still advocate that we have to have perfect data to make decisions. These people who aren't data literate then kind of latch on to that. And then what you end up is, well, you have data and you could be using it to help inform decisions, the teams are really, again, going to their gut. Our design kind of can come in, and especially now when we're talking about within a company and kind of products to help the organization make better decisions or products that are being sold kind of B2B. Is design can help focus on the signal and less on the noise. So again, there's a lot of different data out there. Showing it to everybody is how you get into the some of these issues where people who are data purists will kind of cling to we can't make this decision because we don't have enough data, whereas the people who are data literate will just feel overwhelmed by all of those different things and just pick and choose the things that they think tell the story that they already want to tell. But if you're if you have great designers who have at least good understanding of the data. It's rare that you get great designers who are also great at understanding the data. It does happen on occasion. But then you're, you're paying a lot for them. It's a good premium. <laughs> they, they can hire you, Brian. <laughs> but w- w- when you have that, though, you can really help the organization focus on the most important pieces of data at that time. So. And that's not to say that you necessarily start with that for your design. I was working with a, a different startup at, at a point where they were making predictions on whether or not equipment was going to fail. And there, what we we decided to do is actually create uh blanking on, on the term right now. But basically, we're reducing the interface over time. So we would show more signals at the start because the initial user base was more data literate, it was more of data analysts, but the intent of the system was to eventually go and be used by people on the shop floor because the people who were data analysts at these companies were actually on the verge of retirement and there was a need to still have this type of work done, but have it done kind of where the work was actually happening which was on the shop floor. So by learning from the data analysts by tracking what they did in the system in terms of adding additional signals in or graphing the data in different ways we we're able to evolve it over time to start showing kind of what are the most important signals when different types of faults occurred. In addition to that tracking what recommended actions within different business contexts people were taking within the system so that way it wasn't just showing here's the thing and, and here's how you know this is a thing but here's the actual action you should be taking off that data which is really the ultimate point of data is to help make better decisions help right. companies take action so you had some yeah you had some
2: some prescriptions in there as to what to do in this scenario yeah and it sounds like those were informed the through research going out and watching the people who would normally be tasked with what happened what do we do about it is that correct and kind of following that and then modeling that into the design itself for someone else to use that is not an analyst is that basically correct
0: that's exactly right
2: yeah yeah i've had the same experience working in a different different domain context but the same idea and you know we were able to reduce giant tabular interfaces with zillions of columns of information and Watching, learning how customers like. Well, what do you do when you log in? Well, I do this, and I'm looking for anything over 35 in this in column E. Like, why don't we just show them the stuff that's over 30? <laughs> and so by by mapping this whole process, and I'm like, well, what do you do if it's over 35? Well, then I click on and I drill down. Well, drill down to what? Well, I want to see whether there's a correlation between A and B, and is that still going on now, or did it just blip? And how long is it going on for? Okay, so show me how you do, that. <laughs> and all of a sudden what seems like here's all this data all plotted you put it together with help from your parents batteries not included now it's kind of like we can do a lot of this work for you reduce the tooling effort and push an experience on you that maps to the way people like us do stuff like this to borrow Seth Godin's line that's kind of what we're trying to do and it doesn't mean that's always the right way to do it but the net effect there might be to overall reduced tool tax and time the user has to spend digging through stuff to see is there anything here worth paying attention to at all. So I'm 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 with you. It sounds like we had similar experiences there. And and this is a plague of a lot of analytics tools that I see that that come across my desk is that a lot of time they're what I would call that they they have no opinions because it's like opening Photoshop and there's a blank template. And we want you to start with blank because God forbid that we were to decide what you should look at when you log into this tool. We're just the raw data, whatever you want. And it's and the reality is, it's like if this is a purpose-built tool with specific use cases in mind, which it probably should be if you want anyone to use it, you're not really starting with zero. There's no null state. No one is just deciding to walk into this tool out of nowhere with no context, no need, power it up, and just decide to plot stuff. That's a non-existent use case. So we have to do the work to go figure out, well, why are you here? How can we help you? What's this data going to do? How will you make decisions with it? And then we try to model the interface and experience around that behavior. So yeah, I'm going off of my soapbox here, but I've had a very similar.
0: <laughs> I, I would add one, one more thing to this, because this is something I think doesn't get talked about enough with data science teams, mm-hmm. product. And like, like sometimes it's statistical significance doesn't matter to your end users. Like sometimes, actually, I should say more often than not, and maybe, <laughs> maybe some too often. Like, I mean, most organizations aren't looking for 95% significance. Usually 80% is actually good enough for most business decisions. Mm-hmm. Depending upon the cost of getting a high level of confidence, they might not even really value that additional. significant. I know it doesn't quite work in terms of, but the thing is like, I I know a lot of data science teams will like beat themselves up trying to get really high confident predictions. But if it's not a life and death model, like if it's not something that's related to healthcare or related to, you know, catastrophic system failure somewhere, most organizations are willing to accept lower confidence in order to get just get to decisions faster. It's really what it comes down to and have enough confidence.
2: Yeah. I mean, what, one of the big learnings that I had in this space, in addition to talking to, to many guests on this show about model precision and model accuracy versus utility and how much you need to make a decision. I think the thing for listeners, if you go back to, to episode 80 with Doug Hubbard, when he talks about how to measure anything, and I think that's the name of his book, but the thing that really stuck with me was we think of measurement as like getting the right answer. And it's like, measurement is about reducing the risk, right? So it's like, we're 60% confident this is right. We've reduced the risk from a wild ass guess to down to something that has some level of confidence that's with it. And so our job is data people. And I think conceptually data people do get this, but we get lost sometimes in accuracy that We're probably never going to give a perfect answer. And if we could absolutely predict the future, everyone else would be doing it and it wouldn't be worth anything. So by definition, we will never be fully accurate with this stuff. So we just need to figure out, well, what is accurate enough mean to our customer and just remind them when is the missing data or the model prediction when it's wrong? What is the downside of that? Do they understand what the risk is associated with making a decision based on this information? All of this is kind of part of that experience. And I think if we're thinking if we're doing this with empathy and thinking about how the user makes decisions, it can really help us understand what the level, what the number needs to be in, in terms of confidence there that someone can actually proceed with the task at hand that they're doing. So I'm I'm fully with you there. I love this, this idea of we're really just about reducing risk. It's not actually to say, the answer is it's 422.2 feet long. Is it over 200 feet? Yes. Is it below a thousand? Fine, that's enough. Let's go that's how a lot of ceos think it's like i got my gut and like is it a million no it's around 400 okay fine then like i don't care if it's under 10, you know that's the level that 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 some leaders are moving because they know that we can't get that getting to 99 is a waste of time it's not going to change how i make a decision so the more we can accept some of this stuff I, I, and it's hard i think when we when you know the inner workings and you know just how this system's not real time and it only samples every hour and not every minute. And so, you know, all the flaws <laughs> and, you know, the other department calculates the metric differently than this department does. <laughs> I think it's really hard to, to put something out. You feel confident in because you know too much about how dirty it is <laughs> under the covers, <laughs> you
0: know? Absolutely. I also think that goes well with your example of like the person who is only really looking for anything above a certain number, like filter all that noise out. Like, yeah. especially, as you move up in an organization, you're reporting out to the CEO CEO like some some CEOs definitely do get into the details, but sure. at least the initial conversation should not have all those details. Like give them the high level of what they need to know, and then have the other pieces available sure, sure.
2: Yeah. and And remember too, I think it's what you're doing may be simply, can you help me eradicate any ridiculous choices that i might I might make? And can you accelerate the process of experimentation and a feedback loop? So get me to the point where I can feel confident. I'm not making a totally guess-based answer here and I'm not shooting myself in the foot, but it's enough to go learn something. So like, fine, let's go that way for a while until we learn something else. Let's not spend more time deciding which way to point the ship. It sounds like left-ish is the way to go. So let's go left-ish until something tells us to turn right a little bit. And that might be the job of the interface, the dashboard, the tool, the report, the whatever you're creating as as an, an analytics person or or giving a forecast. That might be enough to create value for somebody. So tell me, I'm curious, your your wife's an economist, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Tell me about dinnertime time arguments. Do you have any good stories about I would love to hear how someone with a qual perspective talks to an economist. I kind of the secret thing. I I'm really fascinated by economics. Like I like freakonomics and, and Steve Levitt's other uh, people I mostly admire. I love these shows. I've learned so much about kind of how how the world works, at least when we model it in that way. But I also come from a UX background, and I'm this is a fascinating thing for me. So talk to me a little bit about what dinners like, or or breakfast, or wherever these. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, she she actually talks to me about a decent number of her, like analyses that she's trying to work on. I, I actually have enough statistical background that I can follow pieces of it. I will say that a lot of models that economists use from what I learned in statistics are in some cases not as statistically sound. (laughs) They do some things that economists definitely agree. I mean, she's got her PhD from Chicago, so it's like a good, solid economics PhD. (laughs) But and, And they definitely have all within that field agreed that this is how to do this analysis. But Kind of like within uh, user experience, like when we evaluate a Likert scale question, we will take the mean of it. You're technically, from a statistical standpoint, not supposed to take the mean of uh, ordinal data. So you're not technically supposed to take uh, the mean, you're supposed to take the mode of something like that to get the average of a Likert scale because it's the most frequently answered entry. But within the field, we've agreed that that's what constitutes knowledge. This is getting into all the philosophy of science, epistemology of like, what what do we say is fact? But it's the same thing within statistics and economic models. So that that's part of what we talk about. We're, well, she'll explain something using the the term that they're using in economics. And I'm like, well, that sounds similar to this thing that I learned in this statistics class on structural equation modeling or something else. And then I find out that it is, but they're just calling it, they're giving it a different name within economics. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> sort of worked through some of that, but I, I haven't done any of the actual hard writing of stats since grad school. I just know enough of the like, it's more of the statistical theory at this point than the actual how to go and do those different calculations, which is part of what makes it easier to work with the data science teams too. Sure, sure. Is there any,
2: from your experience at Klaviyo, is, is there anything you think the, the user experience or the design community needs to know about data? Like we talk about this from the other, we talked a lot about what we think, what kinds of user experience knowledge could be beneficial in the data product space and more the technical crowd. What's the reverse of that?
0: yeah so i I kind of like to think of it as everything old is new again, so when okay. user experience was getting started in the eighties, kind of the had been there were some human factors, people, some psychologists, whatever else. But the important thing is that they didn't know anything about how to program a computer, they didn't know anything about computers in general. they just knew that humans were using those computers, and they needed to make that software easier for people to use. What they found though, is that in order to effectively make that software easier for people to use, to make it useful to people, they had to learn a minimum amount about that medium in order to start crafting those different pieces of the experience that were were going to provide value to people. We're running into the same thing with data applications where it's not enough to just know that numbers exist and those are a thing or to know some graphic primitives of line charts, bar charts, et cetera. As a designer, we have to understand that medium well enough that we can have not a, necessarily a deep conversation with our partners on the data science team or analysis team, but at least enough of a conversation where we can find that shared language. Like what I was talking about was having that conversation with my wife at dinner. We're, we're using different terms that mean the same thing. So mm-hmm. finding that shared vocabulary, as well as understanding the limitations of that medium. I also like to think of like oil versus charcoal, for example, like very different mediums from a painting perspective. If you don't understand kind of what the limitations are and kind of how blending the different pigments together differ across those two mediums, then you're you're not going to have very good art same thing in terms of you're not going to have a very usable system if you don't understand enough about the data
2: mike this has been really fun to chat with you thanks for coming on here any two questions or really one question either i wanted to open it to you for any like closing thoughts here or is there a question that i should have asked that i didn't
0: no yeah i don't i don't have a great one for that one in terms of closing thought i guess the biggest one is I'll address more of the data science people here. Like, as a data science person, it's not enough to just look at kind of the analytics of how people are, are using the systems that you're helping design, or kind of whether or not they're opening your, your dashboard. You really do have to observe what decisions they're making and focus your conversations not around what data people need, but what decisions they need to make and how they need to make those decisions, really. So because some decisions are going to be more important to have that level of rigor and other decisions are going to be, they just need some level of direction and they just need just enough confidence. So knowing the difference between those. Great,
2: thank you so much. Where can people follow your work, LinkedIn, website? Tell us how to get in touch.
0: Yeah, I've been lazy with my website, so it's all on LinkedIn right now. And it's just my corn page though.
2: Mike Oren, great. I will uh, definitely link that up there. And Mike, thanks for coming on Experiencing Data.
0: Thank you very much.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag #ExperiencingData. Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com podcast.